Welcome to the new episode of American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, legends, and lore of America's past. Show is hosted by Cody Beck and Troy Taylor, and we want to welcome you to our fourth season, Haunted New Orleans. If you're tuning into the podcast for the first time, we suggest you start listening to the Haunted New Orleans season with episode 53, which is where this season begins and where we set the stage for the many dark tales ahead. In each episode of the season, we'll be revealing the history, mystery, spirits, scandals, and sins of New Orleans, a city we believe is the most haunted in America. So check all the doors and windows, put some more wood on the fire, and get ready for the next episode of Haunted New Orleans. In the heart of New Orleans' French Quarter, just beyond Jackson Square and the St. Louis Cathedral, is the Bourbon Orleans Hotel. It's a place where the past truly collides with the present in both colorful and eccentric ways. The building and the grounds that it stands on has seen a wide variety of uses during its history, and it seems that every one of those moments in time is left behind an impression in the shape of ghosts and spirits. There are many haunted hotels in New Orleans, but for sheer variety, nothing rivals the many hauntings of the Bourbon Orleans. The street on which this graceful hotel now stands was there when New Orleans was in its infancy. The avenue bore the name Orleans and it became the center of the growing settlement, the original city that we now know is the French Quarter. Populated first by the French, it became a mixing pot of cultures, attracting both the rich and the poor. The blend of French, African, and Spanish became known as Creole, a term used in many culinary, cultural, linguistic, and architectural variations that sets the city apart from anywhere else in America. It was the Creole society that built the city and made it something that can never be imitated or replaced. Entertainment was desperately sought in the hostile early days of the settlement. As the citizens struggled against floods, diseases, and early deaths, they looked for ways to distract from their hardships. Most of them, so far from home, craved music opera and dance from home. This led to the first small theater being built on St. Peter Street in 1792. The first performance, a comedic aria, introduced New Orleans to French opera. When the poorly constructed theater closed down 12 years later, theater manager Louis Tabari built a new theater, Theater New Orleans, one block away, just off Bourbon Street. It took years to complete, finally opening its doors to Creole Society in 1815. The French provincial building rivaled other small theaters that had opened before it, offering luxury that could only previously have been found in France. But an arson fire reduced the theater to ash just one year after its debut. The lot where the theater once stood was snapped up by New Orleans entrepreneur John Davis, and he rebuilt the theater New Orleans and added a grand ballroom, the Salle de Orleans, on the site that is now the Bourbon Orleans Hotel. Davis hired British-born American architect Henry Latrobe, who designed the U.S. Capitol in Washington, D.C., to build the new theater and ballroom with hopes of outshining the other theaters and concert halls that had opened in the city. And it worked. 
multiple dramatic corps traveled from France to New Orleans to perform at the new theater. It was a masterpiece of classical architecture that held breathtaking scenic arrangements, elevated and spacious seating, gallery boxes, and perfect acoustics. The theater offered a wide variety of entertainment, too. There were operas, plays, and musical exhibitions, making the Theater de Orleans the most important music venue in the city before the Civil War. The circles of Creole society flocked to the theater. It seated 1,300 people and was almost always sold out for every performance. From music stands to orchestral chairs, from wardrobe to ticket windows, Davis spared nothing, often making personal sacrifices to ensure that the theater succeeded. New Orleans became known as, quote, the opera capital of North America. But Davis was not without competition. Many other theaters came and went during the first decades of the Theater de Orleans dominance in the city. Davis always tried to find an edge and wanted to offer something that other venues didn't. As a lover of gambling, he set up an elegant gaming parlor in the building. Up until that point, cards and gambling had been viewed as a socially unacceptable pleasure that was only found in riverfront dives and sporting houses. Davis gave it an air of sophistication, though, introducing Faro and Blackjack to the Creole men of society. He served fine wine and delicacies, and soon the wealthy were flocking to his gambling parlor to indulge in games of chance. The Theater de Orleans enjoyed its golden era during the 1840s. The gaming parlor and ballroom were frequented by the city's finest residents and by worldly patrons who loved drama, dancing, and dice. But all good things must come to an end. By the end of the 1850s, the theater was already deteriorating when John Davis passed away. His death dealt a blow to the entire city. He was one of New Orleans' leading citizens, and his funeral was the largest the city had ever experienced. Then in 1866, the theater de Orleans burned to the ground, but thankfully, the ballroom was untouched by the fire, and this created another chapter in the history of the Bourbon Orleans Hotel. The Salle du Orleans, Davis's ballroom, had been the scene of music and dancing in the city since 1819. Within the walls, theater goers gathered after the show next door to marvel at the ballroom's brilliant lighting, elaborate mirrors, and its imported carpets, chairs, and chandeliers. This gilded entertainment palace became an icon, known not only for hosting the city's most glamorous social events, but for its perfect location in the center of the French Quarter. During the era of its construction, Creole society held balls at the high social season of autumn and winter. They celebrated special events such as engagements and weddings and regularly scheduled masquerade balls as well. The Salle du Orleans was the pride of the city. Joining the ballroom with the adjacent theater allowed dances to drift from one room to the other as the orchestra played and filled the halls with music. Nights at the ballroom were said to be the most impressive galas held on American soil. Some of the greatest events in the city's history were held at the Salle du Orleans. Perhaps the most famous was a night held in the honor of Marquis de Lafayette, the French aristocrat and military officer who served alongside George Washington during the American Revolution. Lafayette visited New Orleans in 1825 and a party was held in his honor in the ballroom with more than 800 of the city's most prominent citizens in attendance. In 1828, a fire burned the Louisiana Capitol building and forced the state legislature to find an alternate site to conduct business. The ballroom provided them assembly space, allowing state officials to, a place to meet until the new Capitol could be built. And this was not the last time the ballroom was used as a political meeting space. From 1852 to 1881, the first district court was in session at the Salle du Orleans. While housing the criminal court of Orleans Parish, numerous cases were heard during the day, 
while dancing and music echoed off the walls at night. It was during a slightly earlier era that Mardi Gras began to be celebrated at the Salle du Orleans. The development of Carnival began when the city was first founded, but it wasn't until 1838 that the first parade occurred in the French Quarter. Masqueraders gathered on foot in carriages and on horseback, throwing trinkets to the crowd. In 1857, the first Mardi Gras, as we know it, began when mule-drawn floats pulled by the mystic crew of Comus introduced the torch-lit processions and thematic parades that we think of today. Generally, the grand finale of the iconic Mardi Gras parades ended with a ball at the Salle du Orleans. At this mass gala, mock royalty was presented and honored while attendees danced and drank the night away. However, Mardi Gras parties were not the best known of the grand balls to be held at the Salle du Orleans. In the first half of the 19th century, the ballroom became better known for what were called the quadroon balls. New Orleans has always been a wild mixture of culture and races. Three centuries of the kind of chaos created by the society gumbo makes the city what it is today. Almost since the beginning, African-American culture has been a more powerful driving force in New Orleans than in perhaps any other American city. The first Africans to come to Louisiana came as slaves in 1719, and over the next decade, at least 7,000 followed in their wake. But not all Africans living in New Orleans were slaves. There were many free black who were either former slaves or free black immigrants from the Caribbean. In city records, a designation for their status as a free person of color had to follow their name in case they might be mistaken for white. As racist as this was, New Orleans offered free blacks more rights than any other American city, allowing them to own property and to seek justice in the courts. There was another aspect of free black life in New Orleans that remains one of the most controversial and mysterious customs in the city's history, the quadrant balls. In those days, having any African blood could affect your place in society. Men and women of separate races were prohibited from marriage, but this, of course, did not stop the races from mixing. Shades of skin may have varied, but it had to be kept track of. In other words, the less African-American blood you had, the better, which made quadroon women, one-quarter African-American, or octoroon, one-eighth, the least offensive of the race. But even so, Creole society did not consider them worthy of marriage. The quadroon balls were held at the Salle du Orleans, and during these extravagant events, mixed-race daughters were presented by their mothers as potential mistresses to masked white men. The wealthy sons of business and plantation owners sometimes supported quadroon mistresses and families in addition to their legitimate white families. Many have assumed these young women to be no better than prostitutes, but this was not the case. The girls were raised to be proper young women and were as well-educated as the time allowed. They were free women and known for their beauty. After being presented at a ball, the young woman left with a suitable protector, usually a young Creole gentleman with money who would then support her in fitting style. The women would own property in a small house in the upper quarter, and often these arrangements would last for many years, or perhaps for life. Most of them became renowned for their successful business and rooming houses and were usually well-regarded by their neighbors. The upbringing of children from these alliances was prearranged. Most education was taught abroad, usually in France, as there were no schools available for mixed race children in New Orleans at the time. The Creole called these left-handed marriages, but they were never technically legal. It was a poorly kept secret in the city for decades, even though many of the arrangements lasted for an entire lifetime. 
The quadroon balls lasted until the late 1870s, although since they officially did not exist, little record remains as to what exactly occurred during them. Regardless, they were a principal diversion for white men in those days, and many would gather at the Salé du Orleans to drink, talk, and hopefully make the acquaintance of one of the beautiful young women that he met. The quadroon balls ended in 1881 when the Salé du Orleans went up for sale. It was purchased by a man named Thomas Lafon, but not for himself. It was a gift for a group of women who had been working diligently nearby for years. They incorporated the ballroom into an orphanage for the convent that had been founded at the site. And the next chapter in the future hotel's history was written. In a way, the Sisters of the Holy Family Order was created thanks to the notorious quadroon balls that were held at the place where their convent would eventually stand. Henriette de Lille was the daughter of a free woman of color and a wealthy Creole man whose relationship had been arranged through one of the balls. Henriette grew up in a world of literature, music, and dancing, raised to be someday escorted by her mother to also become a quadroon mistress. But that was not what Henriette wanted from her life. She was drawn to religion. She was raised as a Catholic and had been influenced by Sister Martha Fontier, who opened New Orleans' first school for girls of color. Rebelling against her mother's wishes, Henriette began working with slaves and the poor of the city while teaching in the local Catholic school when she was just 14. She became an outspoken opponent of the quadroon balls and the left-handed marriages they created, believing they represented a violation of the sanctity of Catholic marriage. By 1836, Henriette had formed a small unofficial congregation of nuns, seven Creole women who called themselves the Sisters of the Presentation of the Blessed Virgin Mary. That same year, Henriette's mother suffered a nervous breakdown. The court declared her incompetent and all her assets went to Henriette. This allowed her to purchase a small home that became their first convent. In 1842, they became the Sisters of the Holy Family. Nuns had shaped much of the social landscape of New Orleans. They were not passive, complacent women who stayed in the background of the church. The Sisters of the Holy Family, like other orders in the city at the time, were outspoken and protested for women's rights and equality. They became the first order of Creole nuns in America, and most of them were African American. They gathered to pray each Sunday at the St. Louis Cathedral after spending each week feeding the poor, teaching neglected children, and instructing the city's people of color. During the Civil War, the city was captured by the Union and the Sisters of the Holy Family established a hospital for sick and wounded soldiers where a portion of the Bourbon Orleans Hotel now stands. Then in 1862, Sister Henriette died from tuberculosis, cutting short her life of service and charity. She was buried at St. Louis Cemetery No. 2, but the good works that she began did not end with her death. In 1881, the Salé du Orleans was turned into a convent, school, and orphanage, where once the halls had echoed with music, for the next 83 years only whispers, the sound of an occasional novena, and the laughter of children could be heard. The nuns felt that the purchase of the building was a fitting one. They had wiped out what Henriette felt was a part of the city's sordid past and replaced it with a place of virtue. By the 1960s, the convent had outgrown the location in the French Quarter. Pressed by a need for larger facilities for its 1,300 students, they sold the building to a group of investors. One of their first steps was to preserve and restore the Salle de New Orleans. The ballroom had become an integral part of the hotel that replaced the convent that stood at the site. 
When it opened, the Bourbon Orleans became one of the finest hotels in the French Quarter. The old walls of the school came down and the ballroom was restored to its former glory. Where there was once a patio for the students, there is now the blue-green waters of a saltwater pool. Surrounding the courtyard are 218 guest rooms, some with balconies that overlook Bourbon Street's infamous nightlife. And contained within those walls are the spirits of children, soldiers, nuns, and guests from the location's history who simply refuse to depart. Perhaps the most unnerving haunted section of the hotel is the Grand Ballroom, the former Salle de New Orleans. The ballroom and meeting rooms that surround it boast scores of spirited encounters with the other side. The tales that are told by doormen, bellhops, and staff members make for a chilling laundry list of weird happenings. During the restoration, John Davis's luxurious gambling room was turned into restrooms. One evening during a wedding reception, a member of a bridal party went into the men's room and was terrified when a sad-looking man in early 19th century clothing appeared from nowhere and walked right through him. During another wedding, a man in a soldier's uniform was spotted mingling with the guests. Assuming an eccentric reenactor had crashed the festivities, one of the groomsmen walked over to him to ask him to leave, and the man simply vanished. Staff members report they've often heard the sounds of voices and laughter of children coming from the closed, locked ballroom. Knowing that no one is in there, they open the door anyway, only to find the area deserted. Other employees say they have frequently heard footsteps walking and running across the ballroom floor, even when no one is present. Perhaps the sounds of children from the era of the school are still present in the building. The rest of the hotel also has more than its share of ghosts. The ghost of a young woman reportedly resides in the Gabrielle room of the hotel. She's often seen gazing down into the pool area. Children are often heard crying in the halls or in in unoccupied rooms. Guests frequently complain about the television sets in their rooms turning on and off or the channel changing on its own. Bathroom sinks and showers mysteriously turn on in the middle of the night. Lights turn on and off unassisted by living hands. One guest was reportedly awakened by a lady in white who suddenly appeared and sat down on the edge of the bed. When the startled guest sat up, the phantom looked at her, smiled, and then vanished. One hotel spirit, which seems to favor women, has been nicknamed Raoul. Legend has it that he was killed in a sword fight, likely over a lady, on this site in the distant past. He's frequently seen appearing next to unsuspecting women with a wide smile on his face. As the lady turns to look at him, his smile turns to laughter, and then he slowly fades away. Staff members say that this ghost's antics unnerves some women, but most find him amusing. On the top floor of the hotel is a room that staff members have dubbed the Nun's Room. It earned its moniker because of the large number of guests who have encountered what seems to be one of the sisters of the Holy Family in this dormered room. She's never frightening or threatening in any way. She usually appears in the bedroom mirror and then vanishes. She's also been known to move things around and tap on walls. I stayed in this room about 10 years ago, and while I never saw the nun, the light in the bathroom had a terrible habit of turning on and off by itself. On one of the nights I was staying in the room, I woke up in the early morning hours to see that the bathroom light had somehow been switched on. I knew I hadn't done it when I'd gone to bed. It wasn't some kind of electrical malfunction either. When I got up to turn it off, I saw that the light switch had been manually flipped to the on position by someone with unseen hands. 
Guests aren't the only one who encounter the resident spirits. A staff member who was setting up for a private reception on the sixth floor reported that glasses on a table rearranged themselves while she was working on other things. She believed that the ghosts of children were responsible because she heard the disembodied laughter of a small child just moments before the glasses moved. A chef that was working alone in the second floor kitchen one afternoon getting ready for a special event accidentally knocked two pans off a preparation table. Irritated at his own clumsiness, the chef cursed loudly. Seconds later, all the lights in the kitchen went out and he was slapped across the face. When the lights mysteriously came back on, he was startled when he saw his face in a mirror and saw a vivid red mark of a hand on his cheek. Knowing that he had been in the kitchen alone, the frightened man actually turned in his resignation. I'm going to blame that slap on one of the nuns. The Bourbon Orleans Hotel is not the only building in the French Quarter that's been plagued by connections to Creole society and the left-handed marriages that occurred at the old ballroom. Located at 734 Royal Street is another place that is home to an enduring New Orleans legend, the story of the Octoroon Mistress. The stories say she is a beautiful spirit who only appears here on the darkest nights in December. It's a time of year when even the warmth of New Orleans is tempered by cold winds, icy rains, and sometimes even freezing temperatures. They say that she appears on the rooftop of this building, completely naked and unprotected from the cold. As the wind slices around the eaves, the lovely phantom huddles in misery with her arms wrapped about her, as if they can somehow shield her from the elements. The stories say that she remains there throughout the night, only to vanish as dawn begins to color the sky. This mournful spirit repeats those actions over and over again but only on the coldest nights of the year. In life, her name was Julie, and she was the mistress of a wealthy Creole man who kept her in an apartment above Royal Street. He had met Julie at one of the balls at the Salle du Orleans and arranged for the young woman to be his mistress. She was then allowed to enjoy all the fine things the arrangement allowed her. Julie's life was simple, and she never had to work or worry. Her days and nights were filled with expensive food, fine clothing, glittering jewelry, and more. She was content in such things until she made the mistake of falling in love with the man who gave her such a lavish lifestyle. Such an emotion would not seem so terrible in a different time and place, but because of the situation and more permanent arrangement than what she already enjoyed could never happen. When Julie would explain to her protector that she loved him, he would always reply that he loved her as well. He did everything he could to try and make her happy. He gave her new gifts and new dresses and made sure she had enough money that she could do anything she ever wanted. The only thing he was unable to give her, though, was to make her his wife. Of course, this was the one thing that Julie wanted more than anything else. She begged and pleaded with him, the story goes, sometimes angry and sometimes sad. But each time, his answer remained no. In those days, any amount of African blood could make a woman unacceptable in white society, even an eighth of a person's lineage, as it was in Julie's case. The young man's wealth and privilege depended on the generosity of his family. No matter how much he loved Julie, he could not shame the family by marrying a black woman. 
Julie's anger turned to despair, and soon her lover was not so eager to come to the Royal Street apartment. His fine gifts and even his love for her did not seem to be enough, and so finally he agreed to her demands, but only if she would do something for him that he never dreamed that she would actually commit to doing. He told her he would marry her, but only if she would prove her love for him. He told her that she would have to take off all her clothes and stay on the roof until morning. He told her, I know that it is cold, but if you love me enough, your love will keep you warm. If you won't do this, then our marriage can never be and we'll go on in just the way we are. He said this to Julie with the belief that she would never do such a reckless and stupid thing. It was the middle of December and New Orleans was suffering a cold spell. Rain and sleet were pelting the windows even as he spoke. He was sure that Julie would laugh at his demands and see the ridiculousness of them being married. Then he believed their life could go back to normal. To his surprise, Julie agreed to do what he asked, although he was sure that she would never go through with it. Nothing more was said about it that evening, and no mention of marriage was made. The young couple remained safe and warm in each other's arms, content in front of the fire that warmed the apartment. Outside, darkness had fallen on the city, and the cold rain and icy winds battered the house. Later in the evening, there was a knock at the door, and the young man admitted a friend who had planned to come by and play chess with him. Together, they sat down in the parlor and began drinking and laughing over a chessboard. Soon, all talk of weddings, and perhaps even of Julie herself, was briefly forgotten. But Julie did not forget. As midnight approached, she removed all of her clothing and slowly climbed the steps to the roof. As she reached the outer door, she began to shiver uncontrollably. Icy tendrils of air slipped in around the doorframe and chilled her flesh. She bit her lip and pushed on, intent on paying the price that her lover demanded. She pushed open the door and walked out into the cold and frightening blackness. What happened next, we can only imagine. The young gentleman remained with his friend until nearly dawn. Bleary-eyed, he made his way back up the stairs to climb into bed for a few blessed moments of sleep next to Julie's warm body. The stories say that he was stunned when he found the bed empty and her clothing on the floor. The room was silent and deserted. He cried out and ran for the attic stairs. He'd never imagined she would actually go through with this ridiculous suggestion. As he made his way out onto the roof, he discovered the crumpled body of his lover, cold, frozen, and lifeless. And every December, Julie still walks that lonely rooftop. Her naked body bends to the force of the freezing wind, and as dawn approaches, she falls limply to the roof and then vanishes into the ether. And the occupants of the building, which now houses the bottom of the cup tea room, maintain that strange things do not only occur on the rooftop. For many years, previous tenants claimed that when the rest of the house was quiet and deserted, footsteps were heard in the chamber that once belonged to Julie. They also stated that a young man playing chess would often materialize in one of the rooms. It was said this was Julie's lover, paying an eternal price for his role in her death. Today, Julie apparently tries to make her presence known in various parts of the building. Staff members at the tea room claim to have heard tapping sounds they can't identify, along with a ghostly perfume that comes and goes without explanation. They have also seen her spectral reflection in a fish pond in the building's back courtyard and once spotted her apparition rounding a corner. They believe that Julie has never left this place, and they also believe that it's not only her death that ties her to her former home. She perished on the roof of the house, but inside she lived out the most wonderful years of her life with the man she loved. Perhaps, they say, because of this, her spirit is simply not ready to leave. That has got to be the most racist and misogynistic ghost story of all time. But 
there's one more. Story of a Creole lady in New Orleans that's not as widely known as that of Julie, but it certainly involves a more sinister spirit. Located just beyond the French Quarter in the Marigny District is a house that has been the scene of both ghostly apparitions and terror. It's a two and a half story structure on Royal Street, and while it may not seem to be as haunted as the Lalaurie Mansion, for instance, it's certainly been known for being haunted. The story begins in the early 1900s when the house was owned by a great Creole lady that legends say was named Madame Minier Canal. She was a quiet woman, barely known to her neighbors, let alone to the people of New Orleans. In fact, it's likely she'd be forgotten today if she'd not taken her own life in the attic of the Royal Street house. Late one night, for reasons we'll never know, she climbed three flights of narrow stairs to the attic, fashioned a noose from an old length of rope. She climbed onto a chair and with trembling hands tied the rope to a rafter and then placed the noose around her neck. She was just about to step off the chair to her death when she heard the sound of soft whimpering. She looked down and saw her faithful dog cowering in fear beneath the chair. Spoiler alert, bad things are going to happen to an animal in this story. His small body trembled as if he had some idea of what his master planned to do. She suddenly realized that she could not leave the animal to fend for himself after her death. She took off the noose and stepped down to pick up the small dog. She held him for a moment and then she placed her hands about his throat and began to squeeze. The dog struggled for a few moments and then went limp. Now she hoped her beloved pet would accompany her to the other side. She carefully placed the small dog onto the floor and then climbed once more onto the wooden chair. With the noose around her neck, she violently kicked the chair away. Within a few minutes, she was dead. But those who have continued to encounter say she's never left the house. Rumors spread that the house was haunted. No one can say if these stories were told because of real ghostly encounters or because of the way that the woman who once owned it ended her life, but there were spooky stories told, usually about tenants who refused to stay in the house for long. But the first real documentation of a haunting came shortly after World War II, when the house was sold very cheaply to a family named Ruiz. Because of a housing shortage after the war, there were several families living in the house, including Mr. and Mrs. Ruiz, their son and his wife, their grandchildren, Ramon and Teresa, and Mr. Ruiz's two brothers and their families. In the late 1970s, Ramon and Teresa Ruiz spoke for the first time about the haunting in the house and the angry spirit of Madame Minier Canal. The first person to see the ghost was Mrs. Ruiz. She used to sleep in a bedroom on the second balcony landing. One night, she was in her bedroom reading and heard one of her sister-in-law's babies crying. The infant had been put to bed in a crib a short distance down the hallway. A few minutes passed and the baby continued to cry, so she got up and came to the end of the stairway. She saw a lady with dark hair bending over the crib. Mrs. Ruiz thought it was the baby's mother and couldn't understand why she didn't pick up the child. She called out to her, but the woman ignored her. Finally, after calling out again, she stomped her foot and shouted, Rita, the name of the woman she believed was in front of her. At that, the baby's mother got out of her bed in the other room and came to the doorway where Mrs. Ruiz stood. In seconds, the mysterious woman by the crib turned and vanished into the wall near the closet. The second sighting of the ghost was by Ramon and Teresa's mother. She was in the house alone one day, pregnant with her second child, and went up to the second floor to call her husband and see what time he'd be coming home from work. At that time, the only telephone in the house was located by the second floor stairway that led up to the attic. 
While she was dialing the number, she heard what sounded like the patter of a little dog's feet coming down the steps from the attic. She looked up and saw a little white terrier on the stairs. He was followed closely by a dark-haired woman in a long white dress. She'd never seen this woman before and had no idea what she was doing in her home. She was so frightened that she dropped the phone. She took hold of a religious medal that she wore around her neck and began to pray. She turned and ran down the stairs, too frightened to look back. She was in the seventh month of her pregnancy when she saw the ghostly woman and a few days afterward gave birth to a stillborn baby. Ramon and Teresa always believed that the sighting of the ghost and the death of the baby were connected. After this frightening incident, everyone in the family began to report strange sounds coming from the attic. Sometimes, after midnight, they would hear moaning and the sound of a woman crying in the darkness. On one occasion, one of the brothers, Santos, was coming home from work late one night and saw the ghostly lady coming down the staircase from the attic. She walked out to the end of the balcony and then disappeared. On another night, as he was climbing the stairs to his bedroom, he actually had to move aside to let the woman pass him on the steps. He claimed that he could feel an icy, cold wave of air coming from her. He was so scared, he ran to his bedroom and locked the door to protect his wife and children. Ramon always remembered that when he and his sister would get into trouble, they'd be punished by being forced to sit alone on a couch in the second floor hallway. Nearby was the staircase that led up to the attic. He recalled that often, when they sat there, they would see a woman they didn't know walking down the stairs. He described her as being very creepy looking and wearing a white dress. He also said that a little white dog always accompanied her. Teresa probably saw the woman more than anyone else and started calling her Minnie Canal. She had no idea where the name came from, although her mother asked her repeatedly. She was only four or five years old at the time, and no one would have had any idea until much later about the tragic history of the house. The story of the suicide would come from an elderly neighbor who had lived on the block for years. She remembered the incident from when she herself was a small child. Soon everyone began calling the ghost Minnie Canal, including their cousin Alfrian, who made the mistake of making fun of the spirit. He walked around the house one day singing Mini Canal, Mini Canal over and over again, thoroughly enjoying himself as he did so. Later that night after going to bed, the boy began screaming in his room. When the lights were turned on, his parents saw that he had a bright red handprint on his face as though he had been slapped. The haunting continued to the point that everyone in the house either saw or was affected by the ghost. One night, Ramon's father was lying in bed and he looked up and saw a woman with long, dark hair on the sofa in the bedroom. He assumed that it was his wife. He was about to say something to her when he felt something moving in the bed next to him. He turned over and saw that was his wife, sleeping. When he looked back at the sofa, there was no one there. Eventually, the sightings and encounters with the ghost weren't just unnerving, they were linked to tragedy. Lewis, one of the brothers, saw the ghost and died soon after in a car accident. Robert, another Ruiz brother, began to develop emotional problems after his first encounter with the ghost. He became very shaken and troubled whenever she was seen. One day, he even tried to commit suicide by cutting open his wrists. On another occasion, he was stopped from jumping over the second floor balcony to the landing below. He didn't seem to remember why he was trying to take his own life, only just that he had suddenly become terribly depressed for no reason. Teresa also remembered a day when she found her youngest brother hanging by one hand on the outside of the balcony railing. He was only a baby at the time and no one could figure out how he could have possibly have gotten there. 
Another time, when he was only eight months old, he was discovered nearly strangled under strange circumstances. Apparently, he had fallen from his high chair and was hanging from it by his neck. As he was freed, Teresa suddenly began screaming that Minnie Canal had tried to hurt the baby. Her grandmother was so angry over the repeated incidents in the house that she picked up the high chair and smashed it into pieces. The Ruiz family tried to have the house blessed, but it didn't do any good. Madame Minier Canal refused to leave. Eventually, the family left instead. Teresa said that her mother simply became too frightened to stay there. The house that once belonged to Madame Minier Canal is still located at 2606 Royal Street. A few years ago, a young attorney from Santa Fe named Phil Hantel bought the place and moved in. The stucco house was a little run down at the time, and he assumed this was why the asking price was so reasonable. He wouldn't hear about the strange goings-on until after he moved in. Not long after getting settled, he began to hear of an old woman that once lived in the house. The Creole lady had strangled her dog and then committed suicide in the attic, he was told, and her ghost had never left the place. But Phil soon came to believe that the ghost no longer haunted the house. House. The Creole lady had apparently been banished long before he moved in. The previous owner of the house had been a Native American and rituals were performed in the house to ward off the spirits of the dead. Phil told me in an interview that, quote, they burned juniper branches and other stuff to dispel any evil spirits. I've heard she's trapped in the chimney. They performed that service and then capped the chimney. Is this house still haunted? Well, according to Phil, it isn't. But one has to wonder what might happen if that chimney was ever opened up. His neighbors across the street told Phil to never uncap it, and he stated several times that he never intends to do so. Have you ever wanted to learn a new language? And I don't mean like spells or incantations to trap spirits, you weirdos. I mean like a new language that could help you start communicating with more people on this plane today. Then I need to tell you about Rosetta Stone. Look, you know the brand, you know the name. They have the expertise and a 30-year legacy, which makes them more qualified than ever to help you learn a new language today. They've helped millions of people build the fluency and confidence to speak new languages. Now, this is the part where Troy would tell me that I made some kind of grammatical error, but he's not here right now, so like, I don't know, it's like speaking tongues. Rosetta Stone focuses on speaking practice for real-life scenarios to get you ready for real conversations with real people. Or maybe you can even learn how to use some different types of Ouija boards. I don't know. Either way, Rosetta Stone can help you learn faster and retain your new language Better. Honestly, Rosetta Stone really would have come in handy for season four of New Orleans because I know we butchered some of those French names and I apologize once again. Now you all know I have a nine to five job when I'm not at the podcast factory and Rosetta Stone actually helped me not make a total fool out of myself while I was in Brazil interviewing celebrities. Obrigado. And now I want to help you. So don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, American Hauntings podcast listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Rosetta Stone, how language is learned. Wait, by the way, Troy, like where do words come from? 
Hey, no, don't, 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 don't walk away. Oh, Troy, where do we? And we appear to be recording. Yep. And our mics are working. So big plus. Oh, good things. Feeling okay after that? Yes. (laughs) All right. Thanks for tuning into the American Hauntings Podcast, the show where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. We're now deep into season four of the podcast Haunted New Orleans. I'm your co-host, Cody Beck, and with me is my co-host, author, historian, crime buff, and the founder of American Hauntings, Troy Taylor. Hey, happy new year. Happy New Year! It is New Year's Eve. It is. What so, are you do, What are you doing tonight? Nothing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that sounds. It kind of one of those things that just sort of, you know, it's one of those things I used to do stuff years and years and years ago. Yeah. But, uh, Lisa hates New Year's Eve um, because I, I don't know something about all these bad things have happened on New Year's Eve. So hmm. we don't ever do anything, and then I don't ever do anything. I don't even know half the time. I don't even stay up till midnight anymore. Yeah. It's oh, just really? Not, I just don't care anymore. It's not, although I really, honestly, I'm so looking forward to this year being over. Yeah. I had such high hopes for 2019 when it began, but mm. it really, you know, went into the toilet toward the end. Uh, like, I like, you know, four people I knew died in like a month. Yeah. And it's like, okay, this, can we just be done now? <laughs> you know, just done. Starting you know, off on a positive note for this episode. 2020 everyone. will be much better. So see, there's your positive note right there. 2020 is going to be great because we've got good stuff coming up in 2020. What we are we have doing? finally gotten our act together with so many things like those, you know, evening widths and dead of winter and everything is lined up and ready to roll for 2020. And I am excited about it. But um, probably none of them are exciting, as exciting as the conference. Mm hmm. Because the 2020 Haunted America Conference in June, um, we're it's already lined up. It's set up. You guys have been seeing it popping up. You've heard about us talking about it on the web, on the podcast already. It's on the websites, and the tickets go on sale in less than a week now. January 6th, next Monday, the tickets will be on sale. And if you've attended in the past, you know how important it is to get your tickets for the after-hour events as early as possible so you don't miss anything. Um, and we've got a great lineup of speakers, which you will not miss. Um, if you're attending, you're going to see them. But the new after-hour workshops and the ghost hunts and events and stuff, you don't want to miss. And we've got lots and lots of new stuff this year. So go to ghostconference.net, and you'll see what I mean now. And then tickets go on sale next Monday, and we, we really hope to see you in June. Um, and I mentioned Dead of Winter um, coming up February 8th. So that's coming up pretty quick. It really is. Um, and that is a free daytime event at the Mineral Springs Hotel in Alton. Um, admission. Children are the worst. Wow. You know, <laughs> our last episode, um, I got a message from, let's just leave this in. Yeah, why So um, we got a, I got a message from uh, Nancy Moore, who's one of our loyal followers. Oh, yeah. Her, she's, Nancy's great. But she sent me a message that said that she was listening to the podcast and you could hear the eerie voices of children in the background. Yes. And then she sent me a follow-up message and said, oh, I just realized you guys were, were recording at the hotel and those were mm-hmm. annoying kids in the pool. And yep. I'm like, yeah. Um, but they were tormented souls. The only tormented souls were Cody and I <laughs> dealing with that. So 
anyway, back to Dead of Winter. Um, you know, we've got our free daytime event. Um, all the speakers and all the events during the daytime are completely free. The only thing we ask you to do is to bring a canned good or non-perishable item uh, as an admission to the event. Um, and then we've also got after-hour stuff two that are separate from that. Um, the two Black Mirror scrying sessions that are taking place in the haunted swimming pool with Renee Cruz. Nice. It's going to be very cool. Um, the ghost hunt at Mineral Springs at night's already sold out, but we do have another ghost hunt at the Unitarian Church. Uh, we also have limited spots left for the evening with H.H. Holmes dinner that Ooh. I'm doing that evening. So that's going to be fun. Um, we also have added something since our last episode of the podcast that we hadn't talked about yet. Um, we've added for the first time ever, in the 20 some years we've been doing this event, we've added uh, a t-shirt for this event. Of course. Um, and it's, since it's winter, they're long sleeve t-shirts. They're dark gray. Nice. Uh, they got a cool design on them. If you may have seen it on Facebook or on our website. Um, and we just added that and they can be pre-ordered for pickup at the event. So the shipping doesn't cost you anything. Or if you can't come to the event and you still want one of the shirts and want to help out because that's what this is going to do, um, we actually can ship them out. We're going to ship them out too. So we don't normally do that for the conference, but we're going to do it for this particular event because a portion of the profits from the shirt are going to go to our food bank charity, Mm -hmm. um, where the food and the, and the things are going. So, cause you know, the emission is canned food or non-perishable items for a local food bank in Alton. And we're going to donate money from the shirts to that too. So it's a cool shirt that April designed for us. And, um, it's also going to be something that you can do to, to help out a really good cause yeah. uh, because they're always in need of stuff post Christmas. So we always, you know, started doing this in February so that it's another uh, injection of stuff that will get them through till the spring. Yeah. So um, we hope to see you guys there. Um, if you're coming from the Alton St. Louis area, um, it is February the 8th, uh, 2020 at the Mineral Springs in Alton. Um, the, the doors are going to open in about nine, uh, starts at 10. We're got vendors, speakers all day, different stuff going on. Cody and I are going to be doing a uh, recording, a live episode of the podcast. Um, it's going to be a lot of fun. So we really hope to see you there and um, pre-order one of these shirts because you're going to hear this episode on uh, New Year's Eve. Mm-hmm. And so it's only going to be another couple weeks that we're going to be able to make these shirts available because we still have to have them printed and mm-hmm. everything. So um, it's a very limited window that you can order. So please, please go to AmericanHauntings.net. Uh, the Dead of Winter link is right at the top of the page and get involved in this. We'd, we'd love to have you involved and... Um, you know, coming to the event. It's going to be fun. Yeah. It's the one good deed I do each year. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Me too. And really. then it just coasts so, all the way yep. through to the next yep. February. Yeah, exactly. Me too. Awesome. Well, I love Dead of Winter. Love the conference. It's a great time to get together with other weird people and talk about weird stuff. Absolutely. Uh, speaking of weird people and weird stuff, we got some great listener reviews oh, good, that good, I'd good. like to dive into. Uh, this one might be, this is personal to me, but it might be one of my favorite reviews we've received it's a really long one it it is but it's called car talk 2.0 right right okay so i've been meaning to write this review for a while now because uh it's it is one of if not the best podcast i've ever listened to in or out of the haunted or true crime genre so i'm going to show my age and say that before there were podcasts there was npr and i grew up in massachusetts listening to a show called car talk with my dad every saturday morning on the way to one of my brother's karate tournaments or basketball games or assorted activities um Anyways, these two brothers from Boston who had these great Boston accents and were both graduates <laughs> at MIT. That would be fun in itself. Right. So so nominally intelligent as they would say. Wicked but, car. 
Yeah, your there, car. You, there you go. It's car talk. Park your car. Uh, so, yeah. but who who were in fact very intelligent guys hosted the show where they would take calls from people regarding their many car problems or catastrophes, poking fun at them as well as each other along the way, making what would have otherwise been a very dull and dry uh, call in show, especially for a young girl at the time. But it was fun. It was funny and something to look forward to. Okay. Anyway, what I remember and like most about car talk is the same thing I like most about American hauntings and the repertoire between Cody and Troy and the fun, funny, intelligent way they present each story and poke fun at each other along the way makes. What could be a dry or a grim show uh, be something to actually look forward to. Honestly, comparing a show to Car Talk is the highest compliment a girl from <laughs> Massachusetts can pay to a show, any format, and I mean every word, absolutely outstanding. Uh, that is from, let me see, into, into I can't read this, <laughs> into Heather8888, I don't know, something like that. It's really small on the screen, I, I apologize, but... This is one of my favorite reviews because I listen to car talk with my grandparents <laughs> yeah, and funny. it's it's something I, I talk to Renee about this a lot. It's like when you have a good teacher or someone that's really, really passionate sure. about something, they can make you care about right, anything. Right. And so these guys, I don't didn't and don't give a fuck about cars. <laughs> right, but the show right. was so funny, they were yeah. so informative. Um so to have someone even mention us in the same breath as that is a huge compliment to me, and I really, awesome. really appreciate that. Uh, anyway, moving on. Thanks again. So this next one's titled Great Podcast. It says, I just found this podcast, and I'm happily binging past episodes to catch up. Only complaint, at least in season one episodes, Troy really dominates the conversation. I don't understand what you're talking about. <laughs> I don't. What's the, pro, what's the even problem to the again? Point I don't understand. Consistently talking over and interrupting what? Cody. I hope this is a communication issue that resolves with their experience nope. and team dynamic <laughs> involved in the newer seasons. Looking forward to learning more about Alton. That was from uh, Venturian Tale is Awesome. Um, well, I think that the podcast has gotten a little better since the Alton episode. Sure. No, I think it's something like yeah. you and I didn't really explicitly ever talk about this, but it took us, it took you and I a while yeah. to get to know each other. Right, exactly. To understand how to work together. Yeah, you guys, like to I, talk And again, I do. And I do talk a lot and I get excited about it. And the more excited I get, mm -hmm. the more I talk because yep. under normal circumstances, I don't really want to talk to anybody. So the good Same. news is that I, I work by myself in an office most of the day until Lisa gets there. And so I'm, I'm happily contented not to talk to anyone, but I like to talk to my friends. And I, when I get excited about something, I do tend to, as Lisa will often tell you, I will interrupt people and talk over people. And I do not mean to do it. I'm sure she's not the only one. All of my friends could tell <laughs> right, you that. Right. But when we were starting and we're going to go back, flash back a few years now. And when we started this podcast, Cody and I had only met like twice. Oh, well, I think we'd met, but you were, you know, Nine, on a tour and you were 14. like 10 years old or something. Yeah. And so we really didn't know each other. And so we just decided it might be fun to try this podcast for a season and see how it went. So we didn't really know. We didn't know that we were going to become really good friends we, doing this. We, I mean, I consider Cody and I mean, one of my very best friends. Aww. And I mean, seriously, I do. It's I'm not just saying that Thanks. I really do, because um, I have a lot of acquaintances, but don't have a lot of like tight friends. And those who are listening to this who are thinking, you know, oh, yeah, no, I understand what you mean. I mean, I do have people that I consider to be really close friends. I mean, April and Renee and, you know, um, Coy and Felicia and Adam and Sarah. I mean, people that I have known for a long time or have known for even a few years, but I'm tight with or you know, Scott and Bonnie and yeah. Amber, you know, these are people I've known forever. So it takes me a really long time usually to get tight with people. But, um, we didn't know each other that well. We had when one. We, we had one conversation yeah, before we about 
did the podcast. podcast. Yeah. And then we showed up at the old lighthouse at the old, old lighthouse studios to do our first episodes. And, you know, we had everything printed out on paper Mm -hmm. and we had no idea what we were doing. I mean, none. Uh, we'd never, I'd never even considered the idea of doing a podcast. I mean, mm-hmm. I, when you first brought it up, I'm like, I got enough other stuff to do, you know? And we thought, well, let's give it a try. Cody was going to do most of the work and he still does. And so, you know, all I have to do is talk. So yes, in those early episodes, I'm sure as we were getting to know each other, I'm sure I talked over him and I know I do now. <laughs> and I don't, I don't, I really don't mean to, and I try not to as much as possible, but I mean, be glad I'm excited about it, I guess, yeah, right? You, well, you've got, I mean, you've gotten a lot better about it. Yeah, but that's what makes me do it is yes. once I get excited on a topic, right. you know, I, I do tend to go overboard. Right. Well, I will say in early on, like I, I hate when people talk over each other in podcasts. So I I would back down almost immediately to not have us talk over each other. Um, in real life, if people do that more often, I'm like, Hey, hold, Hey buddy, kind of be a dick. (laughs) Um, but I don't get mad at people when it's because they're passionate. Right. And if you were just being a jerk, then uh, that would be, well, yeah, I mean, if I was just decided trying to, you know, or going out somewhere, you know, a bunch of us get together and we're, you know, having a drink or something, I'm going to get excited and I'm going to get loud. I mean, the more excited I am and the more I drink, the louder I get. (laughs) I mean, there is no question about this. And I know that this is one of my faults, but um, the good news is that that means I'm having a good time. Hey, if I'm not talking, then there's a problem. <laughs> so there's there's a reason why I'm not talking. So right, but I appreciate the it, support. I do know well, and I appreciate people pointing it out. And and I try I try to be more careful. I do. Yeah. I, I really do. I try not to. And if I do, still do it, I apologize. And um, you know, I'll just ask you to forgive me for it. <laughs> so Cody's not mad about it, but no. I know it's annoying sometimes to our listeners. Right. So. Well, thanks, Troy. You're one of my best friends, too. Well, that's nice. Thanks, to hear. man. Fuck off. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Just ruin a moment. OK, this next <laughs> review is titled Awesome. Uh, simply a very interesting and fun podcast. The hosts do a great job of telling the history behind the stories and also tell what is fact and what could possibly be legend or myth. They also do a great job of blending a scripted story and then going over the the story with their own thoughts and opinions. Keep up the good work, guys, and look forward to hearing more seasons. That's from Todd Hedges. Thank you, Todd. And then just a couple more here. This one's titled Awesome Podcast that's well, I think, researched. It got cut off again. Um, I first discovered this podcast through... Perhaps we should look at these on a different format. <laughs> I know. It's, 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 I can't take... I can't copy I know, I know you can't. Apple. So. Um, it takes <laughs> screenshots. So first started listening to this podcast through Astonishing Legends of Velisca uh, series. When Troy came on, he made a comment about how people still think Frank Jones was guilty. My jaw dropped and my worldview was shaken. Up until hearing Troy, everything I read or listened to basically boiled the case down to Jones or Kelly being the murderer. And holding oh Wilkerson up to the uh, up as the best man to investigate the crime. Needless to say, my view on this case has changed as soon as Troy presented some actual research and not gossip from over a hundred years uh, age, po- hundred years ago, posing as facts. I be. I've begun recommending the podcast to all my friends because they know how hard it is to get me to change my mind, and I admit I was totally wrong. I also would be doing the podcast a great disservice if I didn't mention how helpful Cody is when it comes to the talk section that Troy just spoke on. When I first started, I kept rewinding and trying to pay more attention. Now I know Cody will bring up everything I didn't understand or I was questioning. Thank you to Troy and Cody for the great podcast. It's another person you owe 20 bucks to. I know, right? I'm I'm just going broke. (laughs) I came from Velisca, but I'm totally hooked. I'm here for the long haul. Oh, now I see this. Too long, didn't read. It's a great show that's very well researched and easy to understand. Listen to it. Uh, thank you so much. Um, I really appreciate that. That was from 
Libertina. I, I cannot read these. Okay, whoever designed this, it's like beige on off white. I know, but you know, if you just open your phone and look at them on there, oh, wouldn't yeah. that be easier? You know what? Yes. <laughs> okay. Just thinking. I just thinking out loud. Damn. So, um, all right. One more. Let's let's do one yep, more. Okay. okay. Uh, let's see. I'm going to do this one because it's funny. Uh, great podcast. I learned about American Honings podcast when Troy was interviewed by the guys at Astonishing Legends. It's my guilty pleasure to listen to Troy's storytelling and Corey's questions and discussion. <laughs> Thanks for a great listen. It's just a typo. I know, I but I get Corey all the time, but I, I don't care. I really well, appreciate the review. I was review. Tim Taylor for years, so don't Tim feel bad. Tim Taylor. Yeah. That's amazing. From yeah, yeah, Home, home improvement. improvement. Yeah. yeah. So. That's not a bad one to have. Okay, anyway. Yeah, it kind of is. Well, now, anyway, yeah, now, now it is. It, is. Yeah. it used to be funny. Yeah. Oh, anyway, man. go ahead. All right. So, you ready to dive into the story? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Bourbon Orleans Hotel. So, it was our starter. Yeah. Uh, this actually, I don't put titles on these. I know, Perhaps make I my should. I, well, and this one was actually, um, all of the, the theme of this one was actually Creoles. Yeah. And so, but I perhaps, I have that on my, <laughs> on my chart of what all the episodes of the season are going to be. The secret chart that I can't see. I know the Creoles of New Orleans, and I perhaps should start sharing that with you so Uh, that you you would know um, that there's a theme here um, with this. And and I think you figured it out by the third story. I thought the theme was fires. Yeah. Yeah, Why were there so many fires back then? I don't know. Well, because everything was made, everything was wood, you know, so everything would burn down. and, And, you know, the early days, we talked about that. I mean, that's what... That's what made the French Quarter the French Quarter is because, well, it's Spanish, but, right. you know, it was because of all the fires. And this was just kind of more fires. Right. <laughs> well, so, OK, so there's there's a fire. Now, the lot where the theater once stood was snapped up by New Orleans entrepreneur John Davis. And he rebuilt this theater, Theater right. de Orleans, I guess. Yes. And added yes. a grand ballroom. Yes. de Orleans. The, the Saudi Orleans. Saudi Orleans. OK, yeah. on the site that is now uh, the Bourbon Orleans Hotel. Right. He hired well, the, and it's still there. I mean, right. the ballroom at the hotel, that is the ballroom from this all the way back yeah. at the very beginning of this. This is That's the same ballroom. He hires the guy who made the Capitol building. Yeah. Which yeah. Is, so it was I a big mean, deal. That's awesome. I mean, you have to remember, though, and we t- this is you know, going back to the first episode. By this time, New Orleans is like the fourth largest city in the United States. It's crazy. Uh, but the United States kind of ended at the Mississippi River. At right. The time. I mean, we had all that property out there, but no one lived out in the rest of the Louisiana Purchase. I mean, you know, you had some settlers and, you know, of course the Native Americans, say, no one lived but there I mean, except all the people that lived there. Well, I know, but you I know, know what I mean. I it wasn't, mean. it wasn't officially, it was just territory back then. It right. wasn't officially part of the country at the time. But, um, so, I mean, this was a major city, even though, you know, the streets were mud and, you know, yeah. and it was, um, you know, a really rough and tumble. And we'll talk more about that in, in future episodes that we've got coming up about, you know, the war and, and gambling and pirates and all this yes. stuff that's going pirates. on in, you know, in New Orleans at the time. But it was still trying to be this very cosmopolitan city. So opening a theater and even early, you know, the first theater opened in 1815. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, that's right after the war. Right. Or, you know, the War of 1812 and the Battle of New Orleans, which mm-hmm. we'll talk about in our next episode. But that's right after that. And they're already trying to be this, you know, they're introducing opera to the city. But that was a big, big deal at the time. I mean, that's what people were into. I mean, that was their, that was their source of entertainment. Mm-hmm. Shows, plays, and 
opera. That was most that was French. That was what most of the people still were French descendants. And that's what they wanted to see. So this guy was giving them what they wanted. And that's how New Orleans became the opera capital of North America, because there just wasn't really anywhere else at the time where they were doing much of that. I guess it's like a status thing, too. It was. Yeah. Rich, wealthy Creole people, these these wealthy families. And that that's what they wanted. They you know, they had they had seasons where they would, you know, the debutante balls and all that kind of stuff. And it would be the theater season over the, the winter. This mm-hmm. is what they did during the wintertime because it was too hot to be in the city in the summer. So most of them would leave the city and go out to their plantations, ah. um, their, their country homes where it wasn't, you know, you had some air movement and some shade mm-hmm. and, that you did not have in the city. Plus the conditions in the city with water and sewage. And, uh, I mean, there was, terrible. yeah, I'm sure it did. I mean, you know what it's like usually it when, when we now. go down to New Orleans together, yeah. it's always in the summertime yes. and it's brutally hot and you know, it's going to smell like poop and puke yes. everywhere you go. And that's always been the joke is, you know, if you see some water, don't step don't in it step because in that's not water, yep. you know? So, uh, yeah. And they, they, you said they introduced gambling, but like a classy kind of gambling. Right. Well, yeah, because before, and we'll, we'll, talk about that in in later episodes too about some of the early gambling houses in the city i mean this was you know these were the vice districts down along the river i mean this was a place that you went to at your own peril Mm -hmm. you know you were going to be robbed or murdered probably down here and so the wealthy people did not they didn't do that. It was socially unacceptable ah. to, to gamble. But Davis decided that he wanted to add in this fancy, you know, casino, essentially, um, at the, you know, connected to his theater and his ballroom, which was already making a lot of money. It's really smart. And here's another great way to make money. And he introduced Pharaoh and Blackjack to all of these society men. And it became, you know, he's serving wine and food and it became a place that you could really go. And, you know, I can I picture it with, you know, all these guys sitting around in tuxedos, smoking cigars, playing cards. I mean, there wouldn't be any women allowed in there. Well, there would be women, but not their wives or right. daughters, it right. would be mistresses the, the ladies of ill repute, you know, <laughs> right. that would be there. But still, that was, you know, the 1840s and 50s, that was kind of the golden era of this whole thing. Yeah. And then, you know, by the time, you know, by the time Davis died, and then, of course, by the time the Civil War comes along, that shut everything down in the mm-hmm. city. And we'll talk more about that in a couple of episodes, too. But, right. Um, and then, of course, right after the war, the theater burned to the ground. Right, but not the ballroom. Right. So, so. You, you mentioned 1866, burns to the ground. The theater burns to the ground, but not the ballroom. Um, and when people partied there, they, like, really, really party. Yes. Um, and then it was used for a political meeting space a couple of times mm-hmm. at 1838. First parade takes place, the French Quarter. Um, when did the first flashing in exchange for beads occur? Did, yeah, that's a that, good question. Was because it was uh, in 1857 that they started to do the parades. I mean, they had, they had parades in the 1830s, but it was mostly just people walking. But in 1857, they started the first floats. Oh, okay. So when you start the floats... You know, that's, you know, people coming through. Now, I don't know how much flashing was going on back <laughs> right, then. Right. I don't know when that custom began, but we will, I, I will look into it okay. and see what I can find. It's um, research. I'm doing yes, research. I'm doing research. Um, but yes, it, at some point, I mean, it, and of course that still goes on, you know, yeah. I mean, people are still, 
doing that. What's and, the law now? Well, technically the law is, they, they just give you a warning. Mm-hmm. I mean, if it, if it becomes repetitive, they will write you a ticket. Right. But they're not arresting people for flashing their mm-hmm. boobs, uh, but they will tell you, don't, don't, please don't do that. Right. I mean, and if, when a crowd starts to gather, mm-hmm. there usually a cop on Bourbon Street will come up and, and shut that down. Yeah. Often on a horse um, or even on foot, they will shut that down. But mm-hmm. It's it's a little more accessible at Mardi Gras time. They'll let it go a little, and then they they yeah. have to stop it. But then I could I can walk technically around. it's against the law. I can walk around with no shirt on down there, and no yeah. problem, right? But women can't. Um, well, here's the thing: they can show anything they want to, but they can't expose their nipples. That's so I know. Dumb. But so if you have them covered, like with. Um, Pasties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that you can do. That's fine. Right, but you can't you can't not have the pasties on. Even even in those clubs that we pass, you know, when we're walking around on oh, Bourbon yeah, Street yeah, yeah. and they have like the girls that are out there that look like they're yes. strung out on something, yeah. usually trying to entice you it's into really the which is really not enticing, but um they're out there in bikinis, but even inside they have to have pasties on. That's the law. Oh man. Yeah. That's so there's, you know, they have the, the laws have, have kind of, and that's, that dates back a few years. I could look into all the dates and I will, I, was, I promise to do that before joking. some of our future episodes. If you'd like, uh, I can find out exactly when some of those laws were enacted, but hashtag free the nipple. Okay. So <laughs> yeah. uh, you mentioned an aspect of free black life in new Orleans that remains one of the most controversial and mysterious customs is city history in the city's history is the quadruple balls. Right. And we talked about that a little yes. bit in um, the episode before last, the yeah. different, you know, the free people of color and the quadroons and the octoroons and that, you know, the percentages right. of what they called African blood at the time. And the quadroon balls were, you know, the, the, the reputation that all of this has is that for whatever reason, they decided that women who had maybe uh, one quarter African-American or one eighth Mm -hmm. were more beautiful than anyone else. But the problem was, is that you had this tainted blood. And so you could not be, it didn't matter how white you looked, Mm -hmm. if you had any blood at all in this racist society of the time, you were, you, you could not marry a white man. And so it's a, it's a really messed up, but that's how it was. Um, you know, this is one of those, and we talked about this a lot, and I won't get into all this again. We talked about it a couple of episodes ago, but um, this is one of those weird cities where you had, you know, um, African-Americans who were treated better than they were in other cities. They could own property. They could do, you know, they could be free and own businesses and things. But on the other hand, then any any percentage of blood that you had from a mixed race, then you were, you know, outside of the regular society of Mm -hmm. whites. It's just, it's such a weird and strange mixture of people and culture and, and races. And now it's seen as a benefit, but at the time it was just weird because they were almost everyone there Mm -hmm. was of mixed race at the time. And, but it was all in, you know, how it came out and how it looked. And that mm-hmm. was society in the South at the time. Yeah. So, you know, you, we just, you know, we, we tell these stories. We don't, um, you know, we're not endorsing the stories or no. endorsing it, but we're just passing it on. This is the way things were done. Well, you, you tell these stories so you don't forget. Well, right. And, because and repeat yeah, we don't want to repeat those kinds of things. Right. Um, what was, 
It was but interesting the, to me about this. Sorry, it was you said the daughters are presented to their mothers as a potential mistress to masked white men. Is this like an eyes wide shut? Party? Yeah, it kind of sounds like it, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it really yeah, does. It does. And so they were left handed marriages because they were never technically legal. So this right. is just mistresses essentially. Yeah, it was but essentially t- taken care of. But it I was guess. it was mistresses who were allowed by society. It's like watching The Sopranos. Okay. Uh, okay. So all the wives knew that their, you know, their uh-huh. mob husbands had gumas, but don't bring them to the front right, of the children. But you and- just don't want any, you know, it's just a badly kept secret. This is the same thing. Got and, you it. know, they took care of them. They paid for their things. They, they let them own businesses. They gave them money to do all these things and to live in a nice place. And they educated, you know, the children that they had in, in Paris, they sent them away to school. So a lot of the, the children of these left-handed marriages went on to do really great things. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the, you know, what, who became later leaders of new Orleans were children from these arrangements and, Again, it's one of those things where it's like you don't know how you're supposed to feel about it because, you know, it's it's this racist, misogynist thing. But on the other hand, you know, in in a lot of cases, good came out of That's it. Their so way out. How do you? Yeah. How do you deal with this? So I'm not really sure. Uh, so I just did the best that I could. Right. So I think you know, it, I think you did a great job. <laughs> it's just one of those things. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about Henriette Delilly. Delil? How do I say Oh, Delil. Delil, okay. And uh, she was a daughter of an arranged marriage and drawn to religion, founds the Sisters of the Holy Family. And you say that back then nuns were not passive. Not New Orleans. Not Not New Orleans. Orleans. Um, You remember that the Ursulines were the ones who came to New Orleans very early on and Mm. brought the casket girls. Right, okay. And so, and they didn't, you don't mess around. Mm -hmm. They didn't mess around. So they did not allow these girls to be in any kind of situation that would impugn their reputations. Mm -hmm. These were French girls from decent families who maybe had gotten a little too old to be married off to, you know, a nobleman. Because what? they might be 17 or 18 say, instead of 15 or 16. Uh. So they're still fairly young girls. But at the time, people got married so young. Right. So they brought them to New Orleans to give them a chance to marry men of decent families who were in New Orleans at the time. So they you know, built the colony off the casket girls. And so... But they didn't, you know, these girls were locked up at night, kept away from these men. They were only presented to them on under very strict circumstances. So none of the nuns who were in New Orleans at the time, I mean, this was a, for a long time, this was a really rough frontier area, but these nuns had been here since the beginning. So yeah. they didn't, they didn't really take any, any, any crap. So when it came time for them to decide and, you know, Henriette decides that she wants to you know, doesn't want to be involved in the quadroon balls as her mother had been. And mm-hmm. she was the daughter of that. Um, she got involved with the nuns and she had the money to set them up as their order. And they became the first African-American and Creole nuns in the entire country when the, when they're, when the Sisters of Holy Family formed. But they were out there, you know, ministering to the poor, taking care of people, feeding the, the sick, they're feeding the elderly, feeding children, putting them into school, didn't matter what race they were as long as, and nobody messed with these nuns. Yeah. They were, they were a tough bunch. And, you know, you'll find that throughout history that a lot of the nuns that really made a difference were, you know, ones who just 
did what they felt they needed to do, and it didn't matter what anyone had to say. Mm-hmm. I mean, they started hospitals, they started orphanages, they did everything. And they were um, groundbreaking women, you know, prior to the suffragettes and, you yeah. know, and that kind of thing, you know. So this particular case, she, you know, she wanted to do something. She wanted to, you know, when the Civil War came, she set up a hospital and treated both sides. It was not, she didn't discriminate against anyone who was North or South. If you were sick or you were wounded, they would take care of you. And they did that on the grounds of what's now the Bourbon Orleans Hotel. You know, that was a big part of our story is there's so many different things that had to do with the Creole and the Bourbon Orleans that sort of mixed together. And that's why I kind of made it the centerpiece of this, you know, episode about the Creole is because so many things happened there. And then, of course, they turned the convent into an orphanage um, and yep. a school for the children. Um, right. Well, okay. I, I won't make any, I was going to say, make some ruler slapping jokes, but I won't because it sounds like they did good things. Well, I, I, I leave that to the end of this story. Oh, okay. Perfect. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so this is during civil war, the city is captured by the union. The sisters of the Holy family established a hospital, like you said, for the sick and wounded, um, where that both stands. And then it's turned into a, a convent and a school and an orphanage. But then we're taking a time jump here, but, but 1960s convent had outgrown their French right. quarter they, location. I mean, they were, they operated there for, for many a years, time. almost 80 years. They had been there on that spot and then they ran out of room mm-hmm. and 1300 students in that school. And that orphanage. So they had to move somewhere else. So, and, and I think by this time, by the 60s, I don't think a convent fit in much mm-hmm. along Bourbon Street anymore. Is that the building that we, we saw? Yeah, that's the corner. No, no, you're thinking of the Ursuline, which is yes, way down yeah, at the okay, end. That's what I'm thinking. This was where the Bourbon Orleans is. Well, no, I know that. I'm sorry, I was wondering where they moved. The corner of, you know, Orleans and Bourbon. No, I remember that. I <laughs> yeah. just didn't know if this, if where they moved No, was, no, no, no. The Ursuline, the Ursuline convent had been there since the 1700s. It's still there. Got it. Same building. So, no, they moved, they moved away from the French Quarter completely. Got it. Yeah. Okay, and so you say, like, they moved, and then you said, and contained within those walls are the spirits of children, soldiers, nuns, guests from a location's history who simply refused to depart. And that's when we get into some of the hauntings. Right. So the Grand Ballroom is reportedly super haunted. Um, it's a gambling room turned into restrooms. Well, that's where the gambling room was, because that that building, yeah. where the that main, and we've been there, we've been in that part of the building, but that's, that's where the the Sally de Orleans was, that mm-hmm. was the ballroom. And so they turned it into the ballroom for the hotel. Yeah. Uh, when they came in and built the bourbon Orleans on that site where the oh, right, convent right, right. and everything was because the nuns had kept that ballroom as kind of a recreation and meeting area. So they kind of left it alone. Yeah. And so it was a little easier to, um, to redo, but that's become known as one of the most haunted parts of the hotel. It reminds me of like Mineral Springs has some bathroom right. or some things. Right, and right. Uh, is, 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 doesn't some weird stuff happen here in some bathrooms? Yes. According uh, to yeah. Lisa, maybe, or yeah. you? Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's it's just, they you know, the gambling rooms that were there are now the restrooms right off the ballroom. Yeah. And it's a big area. It's the men's and women's. And there have been you know, ghostly things that have happened in both the men's and women's. Mm. So, yeah. It's like, I just want to just relax. Yeah. I was trying <laughs> right, to go pee. Right. Yeah. Leave me alone. Yeah. Uh, there also seem to be a lot of wedding-related ghost stories. Yeah, well, because that's, you know, the, the majority ballroom. of stuff that happens in that ballroom, and it's wedding receptions and stuff. So you right. get a lot of weddings that have had 
strange things happen during the wedding. That's so, fair. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we have all the usual suspects, footsteps, laughter, children, that sort of thing. Uh, but the rest of the, the hotel also has some stories. Uh, so there's a woman, uh, I'm sorry, the, the Gabrielle room, uh, basically like a haunted lady gazing down at a pool from a balcony, I'm, yeah. I'm guessing. Yeah. Something like that. Um, and there's children crying, TVs turning off and on, bathroom sinks turning on. Uh, there's also, there's a, <laughs> like, I feel like I hear the story a lot, but it's like a lady in white sitting at oh, the sure. edge of your bed. Sure. Yeah. Um, isn't there something like that in uh, uh, Elsa, I think? Yeah, the the, the bride, the woman right. in the bridal gown. Yeah. So, so yeah. much wedding. I, 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 do I want to get married? No, I don't know. It's, <laughs> yeah. It sounds terrible. Um, and then is this Raul? Is that the name? Alex? Raul. Ra- Raul. Oh, okay, Raul. Yeah, well, that's what they call him. They don't really know what his name is. They just nickname him that because he seems like a you know suave, yes. debonair kind I, of guy. I'm thinking Antonio know, Banderas. A, yeah, right, exactly. exactly. Uh, so allegedly dies in a sword <laughs> fight and favors the ladies. Um, this sounds like a great like Puss in Boots type character right, kind of thing. Right. <laughs> um, on the top floor of the hotel is a room that staff members have dubbed the nun's room. Yep. Uh, and they often appear in mirrors. And so I was just thinking of like the conjuring nun and all that. Yeah, sort of stuff. nothing, nothing that's scary, though. Um, not yeah. an evil nun, just a nun who's seen in that particular part of the hotel. And I stayed in that room yeah, yeah, about 10 years like? ago. Well, I, I had uh, a friend of mine who had, we'd been setting up a, a trip down there and they had requested that room for me because that oh, was the nice. room where they, you know, see, and that's usually what happens to me. If other people set up the rooms, it doesn't matter what hotel it is. That's where they stick me in mm-hmm. whatever room is supposed to be the most haunted. And I did not see a nun, but I did have experience. I'm yeah. a experience with the, uh, the lights in the bathroom turning on by themselves in the middle of the night. Ooh, I woke up about three o'clock in the morning and the bathroom light was on. I did not turn it on. It was, it was a switch, off. right? Yes, because I mean, I can't have any light when I sleep. It's got to be pitch dark. Mm-hmm. That's how I like it. And um, so I knew I didn't leave it off and or leave it on. And it didn't matter that, you know, I'm sure I was out on Bourbon Street till two o'clock in the morning. And but, you know, came back to the hotel, lights were off, went to bed, woke up in the middle of the night and the light in the bathroom is on and it had been physically turned on. Mm. Doors all locked, no one in the room. So I mean, was it the ghost? I don't know, but it was something. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't me, so it was somebody. So That's awesome. Uh, staff will also report glasses rearranging themselves, and uh, basically a chef got slapped in the face and quit. Right. That's the one I blame <laughs> on the nuns, because he yes. swore yes. whenever his stuff happened. So and that I makes just, sense. That was me trying to be funny. So That makes sense. <laughs> um, okay, moving on from the lighthearted stuff. This is a bad story. This is a bad story. As I commented in the... Um, you know... <sighs> This is one of those that we don't even really have to discuss this. I think the story speaks for itself mm-hmm. when I tell the story. This story has been around for so long. I mean, this is a very old story about the Octoroon mistress. Mm-hmm. And it really, honestly, I, I have written it. I've told it. I don't know how many times over the years. And for whatever reason, this this particular time, as I'm telling this story and I'm reading this story, I got to the end of it. And I realized just how bad the story is. It's one of those stories that, uh, okay, let let me back up and Mm -hmm. say that one of the things that I have always said about stories like this is that we cannot judge the events of the past by the standards of today. Um, Now, that's that seems like a cop out, you know, when when that makes it sound like I think it's okay to tell, you know. Uncle Tom's story, or not Uncle, Uncle Remus stories mm-hmm. and Br'er Rabbit and stuff. I mean, and they're they're so blatantly racist, you know, but 
you know, yeah, no, they weren't in 1895, but they are now. Okay, but that still doesn't make it okay. Right. For some reason, this story, you know, I think I've always tried to kind of paint this story as, as a love story gone wrong. But for whatever reason, I read it this time and I went, holy crap, this yeah. is a terrible story. And um, I just interjected something into the story that is not in the script that this is like the most racist, misogynistic story I think I've ever told. So I, we're leaving it in. Mm-hmm. We're going to leave this story in, but I don't even think we need to talk about we it anymore it. because it's just one of those stories. that's just like, wow, yep. um, that is this is really um, dated, yes. super dated. It's a super dated story now. I don't think they... I don't think I've ever heard this story told on a tour mm-hmm. or anything. They may talk about it still at the bottom of the cup, uh, but I'm not even sure if they do anymore. But I, I've never heard it on a tour. And maybe, you know, I, I, I tried to give this this episode the theme, as I said, and it was a, a Creole story and it tied right into the Octoroon balls and that kind of thing. But let's just leave it alone. Yep. Let it stand for what, you know, how it is. And, you know, I already gave a commentary on it. So we'll just move on to our last story. So, which is a good one, which is a, I think a scary story. Yes. The one at the end is scary. Yes. That is someplace that I would not want to live, whether or not it's haunted now or not. It sounds like that some people had some really bad experiences here. Yes. So, okay. Madame Minyor Canal. Minyor Canal. Minyor Canal. Okay. So it is. And and you did the spell. The little girl called her mini canal because that's how she could pronounce it. And no one ever told her that. That's what's the cool part of that story is this little girl, she's not little when she's telling the story, when she recounted her own stories, you know, 30 years later, she wasn't a little girl anymore, but when she was a child, she somehow came up with this name, mini canal, Mm -hmm. which is as close as a little kid could probably say. I mean, it's it's about as close as you and I could say to her name, let alone a little kid. But um, and no one knows where she got this mm-hmm. other than directly from the woman, you know, that cause little kids are, little kids are weird, man. They are weird, Secret, man. You know, mysterious, you know, Ugh, making, invisible yeah. friends yeah, exactly. and stuff, you know? So Ugh, fuck that. So, okay. Yeah. Was, it's also on Royal street. Um, this, yeah, but, but quite a bit further down, uh, Marini district is outside of the French quarter. Mm. It's like, you know, when we go down to, um, well, it's down headed in the direction where, well, you know, the French market yeah. is okay. Yeah, yeah. And that we always go to that pizza place at yep. Louisiana pizza kitchen. Beyond that is the Marini district. Oh, it's not, okay. it's not Treme and it's not Frenchman street, but it's, it's that area. Got it. So just kind of outside. So it's, okay. yeah, but it is on Royal street. It's just further outside the French quarter. Got it. Well, this story, this pisses me off. Someone's about to hang herself. And then it's like, Wait, Oh, I know. Right? How about I kill the dog? Well, I know I myself. put that in there. You know, I even said, as I'm reading this, I threw something else that wasn't in the script. Spoiler alert. A dog dies in yes, this story. Well, you got to tell people. Well, and it, it, you know, but but that's an important part of the story yes. because every time someone sees this ghost, they see you this little dog. white dog following her. Right, and, and she's not a, a nice person, but no. for whatever reason, the dog has stayed with her. Apparently, <sighs> because dog, puppies are better than they people. don't know better. Yes. Yeah, they don't know any better. Uh, the first person to see this asshole ghost was Mrs. <laughs> Ruiz. Um, 
uh, let's see, Ramon and Teresa's. Okay, then there's. I'm sorry, there's Ramon. Yeah, there's and a lot mother. of. Yeah, there's a lot of family living in this house right. because this was post World War II. Mm-hmm. The house was really cheap when they bought it, and yet they didn't have a lot of money, and there was no place to live at the time. Right. I mean, we're talking about right after World War II, and we in our last episode we talked about the Lollerie Mansion and talked about how there was a housing shortage during World War II because they had all those workers there. Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of them didn't leave. And so you still had a lot of people living in New Orleans right. that weren't there before. And so because of this housing shortage, you've got, you know, Ramon and Teresa's parents, um, their, or, or actually the, their grandparents, mm-hmm. and then their, um, Ramon and Teresa's mom and dad, the, the grandkids, mm-hmm. um, and then they had um, the grandfather's his two brothers and their entire families are packed into, the, and it's not a very big house. Yeah, I've been to the house; it is not that big. That's a lot of people living there. Yeah, uh, but that's that was n- normal for that time period. Right, you know? right. So this woman's pregnant, uh, sees the ghosts, and loses the baby. Yeah, um, yeah. and you know that that's terrible in itself. But then there's other things that are similar to that. I always like the story of of um, Ramona Teresa's grandmother waking up and with the baby crying and mm-hmm. going out to the hall and seeing the woman bending over the crib. Yes. And she thinks that it's her daughter-in-law and she yells at her to pick up the baby. And then the daughter-in-law wanders out of her own bedroom. Well, yeah. that's, see, that, that's a horror film yes. right there. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's a movie. That's a movie. Absolutely. It's like, oh, that. The, I mean, I can see that Did one. you ever read those two sentence horror stories? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was one. Did that, you see the, the little series they did of it? Uh, no, I saw yeah, that it was coming on out. Netflix. It's yeah. kind of fun. Is it? Yeah. There was one yeah. that was something like, uh, like I, I tuck my son into bed and he's like, you know, dad, check under the bed for monsters. Look under the bed and I see my son, another version of him. And he goes, daddy, there's a monster on my bed. Yeah. Like that kind of <laughs> yeah. shit. Yeah. Little kid. Anyway, it's creepy. It's always with the kids. I know. So, um, so basically a bunch of people see this woman in a dog. Um, Lewis saw the ghost and died soon after in a car accident. Robert tries to commit suicide. By well, I think at that point they'd started to, as they are filled with dread over this woman, I think they started to attribute, attribute anything that sure. happened to sightings of, you know, of the right, ghost, right. which, which makes sense, like especially when he's kind of, yeah. And when he's kind of, you know, has already suffering from apparently some sort of mental illness, mm-hmm. then it must have something to do with this ghost. Right. So. So, Teresa said her, that's kind of funny. Her baby brother was hanging by one hand from the balcony railing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Try to get the house blessed. That didn't work. So they just, they left. And then a few years ago, a young attorney named Phil Hansel moves yeah. in and you interviewed him. I did. I did. How and this that? was been... This was in like 2010, so mm-hmm. it's been a while. And uh, I just, you know, it, it, it was, they ran a story in the paper down there for, for Halloween, and they used my material on the story, which they attributed to me. Mm-hmm. And then they mentioned that this guy was living there, so I got in touch with him. And nice guy. Um, I don't know if he still lives there. I haven't been in touch with him in years because it was just a one-time interview. But he said that, you know, that the house wasn't haunted anymore, as far as he knew. He'd never had anything happen while he'd been living there, and he'd fixed the place up. Uh, but when he bought it, it was really cheap, and mm-hmm. he didn't know why until, of course, after he'd moved in. And all the neighbors are like, oh, hey, let me tell you a story. You know oh, how that boy, goes. Yeah. But uh, apparently one of the neighbors told him that the one of the previous owners had been a Native American mm-hmm. who had d- had blessed the house. And they had closed off the chimney of the house. Right. And that was, the neighbors were like, just, hey, you know, we don't know if the house was really haunted, but our advice is don't, don't, don't open, mess with the, don't chimney. open the chimney. Yeah. You know, don't open the fireplace. I mean, they bricked over the fireplace and, um, 
So he just said, well, you know, I'm just not going to open the chimney yeah. and we'll just leave it at that. Yeah. It's so. like, you know what? I don't know if I believe or not, but, <laughs> but why take a chance? So, uh. but yeah, something about this particular story I've always found really creepy. It's not a famous story. It's not, you know, about a famous house or famous people. It's just ordinary people. And there's just something about this one that I think just is really ominous. Mm-hmm. You know, this, this, this particular ghost just seems bad. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, she killed herself and killed her dog first. And I mean, that's bad enough. But yeah, I mean, the things that happened to this family, I mean, the kids were never, well, like the baby might have been hanging over the balcony. But as far as like Ramon and Teresa were telling the story back in the, this was in the late 70s that I had read their accounts, you know, nothing had really happened to them, but they were terrified. I mean, this family moved out of the house because of them being in, unable to get rid of the, what they called the Creole lady that lived there. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know, the stories just always kind of bug me. And I, I wanted to find a place to put it. And this particular episode seemed like a good spot to put sure, it. Sure. Yeah. So. I mean, it seems like it had an impact on a lot of people. Yeah, There's yeah. multiple deaths and things like that. And she seems like a real dick because yeah. she killed the dog. So, <laughs> I mean, yeah. Yeah. So, that, that is terrible. It's now time for our Ghostwriter segment. If you have a question or comment about the world of the macabre, email us at AmericanHauntingsPodcast at gmail.com. I remembered we were doing this this time. Yeah, good job. I feel good about that. Good job. Our first email comes to us from Anne. She says, Come visit Australia. We have some great stories the House of Monte Cristo, VIC, Cockatoo Island, NSD. W Bogo Road Jail QLD, just to name a few. Yes, I would love to go there. However, it's far away. It's well, it's not even that. I've always wanted to go to Australia, but it seems like every animal there, oh yeah, will kill you. Yeah, everything: huh. snakes, spiders. bugs, spiders, everything. Even kangaroos. Yeah, everything will kill you there. Um, but I would like to go. Maybe one of these days. Yeah. So I, it's. It's it's kind of a I won't even know if it's a bucket list thing, but I I would love to go there sometime. Mm. Well, think about it. I mean, if it's on your bucket list, you could go there, and then if that's the last thing on your bucket list, one of those things <laughs> can kill you. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. they probably have great ghost stories because yeah, I'm sure they oh, get they killed do. by animals. They do, all the time. but it seems that every really everything there will kill you. Yeah, they like the deadliest animals in the world. There it makes me nervous. Yeah, it sounds yeah. like a giant nightmare island, but I do <laughs> want to go check it out sometime. Um, I just had a, a coworker go there. It, it was like oh, he's traveling for, I think, 28 hours straight to get back and Yeah, stuff. that's the other drawback. Uh, but he loved it. He yeah. loved it. Uh, anyway, thanks for the email. This next one comes to us from Christopher. He says, I am super excited about this season's location and stories. The only thing better than being in the uh, than being in the Crescent City is being in the Big Easy with the historian and author Troy Taylor and experiencing everything firsthand, from a cold glass of absinthe at the old absinthe house to a pint of beer in dimly lit Lafitte's Blacksmith Lafitte's Shop? Blacksmith Lafitte. Shop. Oh, did we go That'll there? be in our next episode. Yes, we did go there. Okay, I remember that one. Um, Troy's a real deal, an author who doesn't just regurgitate old stories. He does the legwork and research to get down to the crux of the legends and haunts. Keep up the good work, gentlemen. Uh, cool. So that was really nice, yeah. Oh, wait a minute. What? I know who that was. Oh, you do? Yeah, it's my, it's my buddy Chris. No, no, it's okay. It's Chris Watterson. Oh, that has to be Chris. Uh, so you, because so you owe him he's the bucks. only person who would write in and say that we had drank at all these places together. It seemed it's like Chris. someone who knew you. Yeah, it's Chris. Well, thank you, Chris. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Chris. This last one is from our friend of the podcast, Mark Voorhees. Uh, he basically sent us some interesting links about how to speak and interpret like Kate Cajun. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, yeah. I got to check him out a little bit last <laughs> night, but I want to dive in and see if there's any like gems I can pull out of that. So I think he was probably like, 
like, oh, guys, you're messing oh, this up no, no. so He's bad. Got, well, I, and I, I, I'm going to keep apologizing. I'm probably need to put that in every <laughs> episode that I really apologize for my friend's I can't even say French now. <laughs> French pronunciations, because I do not speak French. And so I'm, I really am looking this stuff up mm-hmm. and trying to phonetically spell it out in my scripts. But listen, that's no guarantee. Yes. I got to tell you, no guarantee at all. But we're working on it. But we are trying. Thanks for sending that stuff, Mark. Uh, real quick, I have a couple of Patreon shout outs, uh, some new supporters of the show. So thank you to Ian, Kathy, and Jordan. Okay, well, I think we should probably wrap this up. And um, it is, uh, you know, New Year's Eve. I'm sure people have other things that they're going oh, to yeah. do this evening. So uh, I just want to say thank you very much for listening. Um, and please, as we always say, leave us your reviews on iTunes. Uh, send us emails. We love to get your emails, too. Um, share this with your friends. If you've got friends who have not listened to the show, but you think that they'll like it, pass it on. I mean, it's free. I mean, what what better way to listen? So Thank you very much and uh, happy new year and thank God that 2019 is over. So let's move on and get excited about 2020. I'm ready to roll. So yes. hopefully everyone else is too. And so. if you don't like the show, send it to your worst enemy. But yeah, either way, just share sure it. Yeah. Just share it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. This episode of the American Hauntings podcast was written by Troy Taylor and it was produced and edited by me, Cody Beck. In each bi-weekly episode, we try to combine history, folklore, legend, imagination, and the truth to reveal more about America's most haunted places, strange tales, and and unexplained events. We make up. You can find the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows, and at AmericanHauntedPodcast.com. Don't forget about... What what is... When did you put it on Pandora? More info about the episodes and links to uh, more from American Haunted. Stop for a second. When did you put it on Pandora? They sent out an email, probably... Three yeah, month, but three Pandora just plays like stuff at random. Can you actually find stuff on well, Pandora? Well, I think it's similar to kind of how Spotify's pl- doing oh, it now. Do you, oh, so, but they Pandora like a podcast is, section. Oh, do they? Yeah, well, they okay, send out an email. Because like I only ever feature. put in like the, some kind of, you know, the Rob Zombie station, and then it plays a whole oh, bunch right, of stuff. Right. So it's not like that. It's like specific stuff. I mean, you can listen to specific podcasts, Or do you have podcasts, to pay, believe. you have to pay like the five bucks to get no, you, Pandora no. Premium or Well, you might have, I don't know. I know on Spotify, you don't have to. You can just no, listen to the right, show. Right, right. I knew that. It's probably the same on Pandora. I don't know. It was, well, it was Spotify, really... you can actually specifically put stuff in though. I didn't sure. know you could do that on Pandora. I don't know. They said, hey. Well, whatever. Hey, you know what? People find it, it on here. there. So great. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. If you listen on Pandora. Tweet at us. Yeah, I'd, let us know because like I don't. Yeah, I should yeah. probably look it up. But anyway, anyway, go ahead. I'm sorry. Because American Hauntings isn't just a podcast or, or podcast delivery network discussion <laughs> right now. Um, it's books, tours, events, and more, all of which you can find at our main website at AmericanHauntings.net. And if you want even more from us, you can become a supporter of the podcast on Patreon. You can get bonus episodes of the show, t shirts, discounts, great stuff in the mail, and more. Oh, you know, more. we had just yeah. before we get to uh-huh. that. Be- nope. Yep. Wow. Um, before we get to that, we were talking about bonus episodes. We do bonus episodes. Yeah. Um, we did a, we've done a couple of live video things oh, on yeah. Facebook and people have liked it in their comments on there. But if you like that, I mean, we could do it every once in a while, but yeah. let us know. I mean, directly to the podcast. Mm-hmm. I mean, email Cody. Um, and, you know, I mean, I'm happy to have your comments on the Facebook page, but I'm also kind of curious if people who listen to the actual podcast, yeah, because you're talking about two completely different mediums here. Right, so if right. you do like it on the podcast, send Cody an email, let him know, yeah, just so we know what we're doing. If you're on the Patreon group, do it in the Facebook group. Well, sure, or whatever yeah, yeah, too, whatever, whatever. You know, we're happy to know. I mean, I'm happy to get the comments on there, mm-hmm. but I want to know: Are these people who are just on the 
Facebook page or right. these people who listen to the podcast. Sure. So anyway, um, sorry. No, it's I cool. didn't I've, actually, I usually interrupt you for fun, but now I had actually two legitimate no, questions. I think it's so. very fair. I think sometime you and I, before we record an episode, we should go live for a couple minutes and like shoot the shit and say, like, oh yeah, hey, yeah, we should do that. We'll figure it's it out. It's a good idea. Anyway, thanks to our supporters. We have upgraded our equipment for the show. And with continued help from you, we can dedicate more time and resources to creating even more shows in the future. Take a minute and check it out. We think you'll like what you'll find at patreon.com slash American Hauntings. Be sure to get in touch if you have any comments about the show, suggestions, reviews, jokes, Troy's Facebook Live videos, or just want to tell us what you really think of us. We're reachable via email, on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and by Carrier Pigeon. And through, like, the operator. I think we should do, like, operators, like, in Villisca. Oh, yeah. Like, call up the operator and ask to be put through. Yeah. Be kind of fun. Yeah, American Hauntings 347. Yeah. Last, yeah, last time I was trying to do the message in a bottle thing, but it didn't really catch on. I thought it was kind of funny. Well, there's no place to put, where are you going to put the bottle? Well, it's, I, and the thing is, I found all these bottles with messages not to us, but to other <laughs> podcasts. So it's like, how do you really corral that? Yeah, it didn't really work. Until yeah. next time. Goodbye. So long. See you later. Bye. Uh, I really did have legitimate questions, no, but, but, and I thought, well, what better time?